0: 12. Detome in certain relationships, that it is as well to postpone until the last that moment when the shapes and tones that represent form in your drawing shall be lit up by the introduction of the eye to the look of a live person. One is freer to consider the accuracy of one's form before this disturbing influence is introduced, and there is a good deal to be said for this, although in point drawing you can, without serious effect, begin at any part that interests you. In setting out a painting I think there can be no two opinions as to the right way to go about it. The character of the general disposition of the masses must be first constructed, and if this general blocking in has been well done, the character of the sitter will be apparent from the first even in the surly stage, and you will be able to judge of the accuracy of your blocking out by whether or not it does suggest the original. If it does not, correct it before going any further, working, as it were, from the general impression of the masses of the head as seen a long way off, adding more and more detail, and gradually bringing the impression nearer, until the completed head is arrived at, thus getting in touch from the very first with the likeness which should dominate the work all along. Illustration, Plately, Sir Charles D. I. L. K. Bart, from the drawing in the collection of Sir Robert Essex, M. P. In red chalk rubbed, the highlights being picked out with rubber. There are many points of view from which a portrait can be drawn I mean, mental points of view, and, as in a biography, the value of the work will depend on the insight and distinction of the author or artist, the valet of a great man might write a biography of his master that could be quite true to his point of view, but, assuming him to be on average valet, it would not be a great work, I believe the gardener of Darwin when asked how his master was, said, not at all well, you see, he moons about all day. I've seen him staring at a flower for five or ten minutes at a time. Now, if he had some work to do, he would be much better. A really great biography cannot be written except by a man who can comprehend his subject and take a wide view of his position among men, sorting what is trivial from what is essential, what is common to all men from what is particular to the subject of his work. And it is very much the same in portraiture. It is only the painter who possesses the intuitive faculty for seizing on the significant things in the form expression of his subject, of disentangling what is trivial from what is important, and who can convey this forcibly to the beholder on his canvas. More forcibly than a casual sight of the real person could do it is only this painter who can hope to paint a really fine portrait. It is true. The honest and sincere expression of any painter will be of some interest, just as the biography written by Darwin's gardener might be. But there is a vast difference between this point of view and that of the man who thoroughly comprehends his subject, not that it is necessary for the artist to grasp the mind of his sitter, although that is no disadvantage, but this is not his point of view, his business is with the effect of this inner man on his outward appearance, and it is necessary for him to have that intuitive power that seizes instinctively on those variations of form that are expressive of this inner man. The habitual cast of thought in any individual affects the shape and molds the form of the features, and, to the discerning, the head is expressive of the person, both the bigger and the smaller person, both the larger and the petty characteristics everybody possesses, and the fine portrait will express the larger and subordinate the petty individualities, will give you what is of value, and subordinate what is trivial in a person's appearance. The pose of the head is a characteristic feature about people that is not always given enough attention in portraits. The habitual cast of thought affects its carriage to a very large degree. The two extreme types of what we mean are the strongly emotional man who carries his head high, drinking in impressions as he goes through the world, and the man of deep thought who carries his head bent forward, his back bent in sympathy with it. Everybody has some characteristic action in the way that should be looked out for and that is usually absent when a sitter first appears before a painter on the studio throne. A little diplomacy and conversational humoring is necessary to produce that unconsciousness that will betray the man in his appearance. How the power to discover these things can be acquired. It island of course. Impossible to teach. All the student can do is to familiarize himself with the best examples of portraiture in the hope that he may be stimulated by this means to observe finer qualities in nature and develop the best that is in him. But he must never be insincere in his work. If he does not appreciate fine things in the work of recognized masters, let him stick to the honest portrayal of what he does see in nature. The only distinction of which he is capable lies in this direction. It is not until he awakens to the sight and nature of qualities he may have admired in others' work that he is in a position honestly to introduce them into his own performances. Probably the most popular point of view in portraiture at present is the one that can be described as a striking presentment of the live person. This is the portrait that arrests the crowd in an exhibition. You cannot ignore it. Vitality bursts from it. And everything seems sacrificed to this quality of striking lifelikeness. And some very wonderful modern portraits have been painted from this point of view. But have we not sacrificed too much to this quality of vitality? Here is a lady hurriedly getting up from a couch there are gentlemen stepping out of the frame to greet you, violence and vitality everywhere, but what of repose, harmony of color and form, and the wise ordering and selecting of the materials of vision that one has been used to in the great portraiture of the past, while the craftsman in one is staggered and amazed at the brilliant virtuosity of the thing, the artist in one resents the sacrifice of so much for one island after all, but the short-lived excitement, age may, no doubt, improve some of the portraits of this class by quieting them in color and tone, and those that are good in design and arrangement will stand this without loss of distinction, but those in which everything has been sacrificed to the striking lifelike quality will suffer considerably, this particular quality depends so much on the freshness of the paint that when this is mellowed and its vividness is lost, nothing will remain of value, if the quieter qualities of design and arrangement have been sacrificed for it, Franz Hells is the only old master I can think of with whom this form of portrait can be compared, but it will be noticed that besides designing his canvases carefully, he usually balanced the vigor and vitality of his form with a great sobriety of color. In fact, in some of his later work, where this restless vitality is most in evidence, the color is little more than black and white, with a little yellow ochre and Venetian red, It is this extreme reposefulness of color that opposes the unrest in the form and helps to restore the balance and necessary repose in the picture. It is interesting to note the restless variety of the edges in Franz Hell's work. how he never, if he can help it, lets an edge run smoothly, but keeps it constantly on the move, often leaving it quite jagged. And to compare this with what was said about vitality depending on variety. Illustration, play Eli. John Redmond, MP from the drawing in the collection of Sir Robert Essex, MP in red con chalk rubbed, the highlights being picked out with rubber. Another point of view is that of the artist who seeks to give a significant and calm view of the exterior forms of the sitter, an expressive map of the individuality of those forms, leaving you to form your own intellectual judgments. A simple, rather formal, attitude is usually chosen, and the sitter is drawn with searching honesty. There is a great deal to be said for this point of view in the hands of a painter with a large appreciation of form and design, but without these more inspiring qualities it is apt to have the dullness that attends most literal transcriptions. There are many instances of this point of view among early portrait painters, one of the best of which is the work of Holbein, but then, to a very distinguished appreciation of the subtleties of form characterisatae and he added a fine sense of design and color arrangement qualities by no means always at the command of some of the lesser men of the school. Every portrait draftsman should make a pilgrimage to a Windsor, armed with the necessary permission to view the wonderful series of portrait drawings by this master in the library of the castle. They are a liberal education in portrait drawing. It is necessary to see the originals, for it is only after having seen them that one can properly understand the numerous and well-known reproductions. A study of these drawings will, I think, reveal the fact that they are not so literal as is usually thought, and flinchingly and unaffectedly honest they are, but honest not to a cold, mechanically accurate record of the sitter's appearance, but honest and accurate to the vital impression of the live sitter made on the mind of the live artist, this is the difference we were trying to explain that exists between the academic and the vital drawing, and it is a very subtle and elusive quality, like all artistic qualities, to talk about, The record of a vital impression done with unflinching accuracy, but under the guidance of intense mental activity, is a very different thing from a drawing done with the cold, mechanical accuracy of a machine. The one will instantly grip the attention and give one a vivid sensation in a way that no mechanically accurate drawing could do, and in a way that possibly the sight of the real person would not always do. We see numbers of faces during a day, but only if you would the vividness of which I am speaking. How many faces in a crowd are passed indifferently there is no vitality in the impression they make on our mind, but suddenly a face will rivet our attention, and although it is gone in a flash, the memory of the impression will remain for some time. The best of Holbein's portrait drawings give one the impression of having been seen in one of these flashes and rivet the attention in consequence. Drawings done under this mental stimulus present subtle differences from drawings done with cold accuracy. The drawing of the Lady oddly here reproduced. There's evidence of some of this subtle variation on what are called the facts. In the left eye of the sitter, it will be noticed that the pupil of this eye is larger than the other. Now I do not suppose that as a matter of mechanical accuracy this was so. But the impression of the eye seen as part of a vivid impression of the head is seldom that they are the same size. Holbein had in the first instance in this very carefully wrought drawing made them so. But when at the last he was vitalizing the impression, pulling it together, as artists say. He has deliberately put a line outside the original one, making this pupil larger. This is not at all clearly seen in the reproduction, but is distinctly visible in the original. And to my thinking it was done at the dictates of the vivid mental impression he wished his drawing to convey. Few can fail to be struck in turning over this wonderful series of drawings by the vividness of their portraiture, and the vividness is due to their being severely accurate to the vital impression on the mind of Holbein. Not merely to the facts coldly observed. Illustration, play Elii, the Lady Aviuliai, H O L B I, and Windsor. Note the different sizes of pupils in the eyes, and see letter press on the opposite page. Copyright, Photo Brown and Company. Another point of view is that of seeking in the face a symbol of the person within, and selecting those things about a head that express this. As has already been said, the habitual attitude of mind has, in the course of time, a marked influence on the form of the face and in fact of the whole body, so that to those who can see the man or woman is a visible symbol of themselves, but this is by no means apparent to all. The striking example of this class is the splendid series of portraits by the late G. F. Watts. Looking at these heads one is made conscious of the people in a fuller, deeper sense than if they were before one in the flesh, for Watts sought to discover the person in their appearance and to paint a picture that should be a living symbol of them he took pains to find out all he could about the mind of his sitters before he painted them, and sought in the appearance the expression of this inner man, so that whereas with Holbein it was the vivid presentation of the impression as one might see a head that struck one in a crowd, with Watts it is the spirit one is first conscious of, the thunders of war appear in the powerful head of Lord Lawrence, the music of poetry in the head of Swinburne, and the dry atmosphere of the higher regions of thought in the John Stuart Mill, and see, In the National Portrait Gallery there are two paintings of the poet Robert Browning, one by Rudolf Lehmann and one by Watts. Now the former portrait is probably much more like the poet as the people who met him casually saw him. But Watts's portrait is like the man who wrote the poetry, and Lehmann's is not. Browning was a particularly difficult subject in this respect, in that to a casual observer there was much more about his external appearance to suggest a prosperous man of business than the fiery zeal of the poet. These portraits by Watts will repay the closest study by the student of portraiture. They are full of that wise selection by a great mind that lifts such work above the triviality of the commonplace to the level of great imaginative painting. Another point of view is that of treating the sitter as part of a symphony of form and color, and subordinating everything to this artistic consideration. This is very fashionable at the present time, and much beautiful work is being done with this motive, and with many ladies who would not, I hope object to a one saying that their principal characteristic was the charm of their appearance. This point of view offers, perhaps, one of the best opportunities of a successful painting. A pose is selected that makes a good design of line and color a good pattern and the character of the sitter is not allowed to obtrude or mar the symmetry of the whole considered as a beautiful panel. The portraits of J. McNeil Whistler are examples of this treatment, a point of view that has very largely influenced modern portrait painting in England. Then there is the official portrait in which the dignity of an office held by the sitter, of which occasion the portrait is a memorial, has to be considered. The more intimate interest in the personal character of the sitter is here subordinated to the interest of his public character and attitude of mind towards his office. Thus it happens that much more decorative pageantry symbolic of these things is permissible in this kind of portraiture than in that of plain Mr. Smith, a greater stateliness of design as befitting official occasions. It is not contended that this forms anything like a complete list of the numerous aspects from which a portrait can be considered, but they are some of the more extreme of those prevalent at the present time. Neither is it contended that they are incompatible with each other, the qualities of two or more of these points of view are often found in the same work, and it is not inconceivable that a single portrait might contain all and be a striking lifelike presentment, a faithful catalogue of all the features, a symbol of the person and a symphony of form and colour. But the chances are against such a composite affair being a success, one or other quality will dominate in a successful work, and it is not advisable to try and combine too many different points of view as, in the confusion of ideas, directness of expression is lost, but no good portrait is without some of the qualities of all these points of view, whichever may dominate the artist's intention, the camera, and more particularly the instantaneous camera has habituated people to expect in a portrait a momentary expression, and of these momentary expressions the faint smile, as we all know, is an easy first in the matter of popularity, it is no uncommon thing for the painter to be asked in the early stages of his work when he is going to put in the smile, it never being questioned that this is the artist's aim in the matter of expression, the giving of lifelike expression to a painting is not so simple a matter as it might appear to be, Could one set the real person behind the frame and suddenly fix them forever with one of those passing expressions on their faces, however natural it might have been at the moment, fixed forever it is terrible, and most in lifelike, as we have already said. A few lines scribbled on a piece of paper by a consummate artist would give a greater sense of life than this fixed actuality. It is not ultimately by the pursuit of the actual real is a on that expression and life are conveyed in a portrait. Every face has expression of a far more interesting and enduring kind than these momentary disturbances of its form occasioned by laughter or some passing thought, and see. And it must never be forgotten that a portrait is a panel painted to a remain for centuries without movement, so that a large amount of the quality of repose must enter into its composition. Portraits in which this has not been borne in mind, however entertaining at a picture exhibition, when they are seen for a few moments only, polog on one if constantly seen, and are finally very irritating, but the real expression in a head is something more enduring than these passeing movements, one that belongs to the forms of a head, and the marks left on that form by the life and character of the person, this is a far more interest than those passeing expressions, the results of the contraction of certain muscles under the skin, the effect of which is very similar in most people, it is for the portrait painter to find this more enduring expression and give it noble expression in his work. It is a common idea among sitters that if they are painted in modern clothes the picture will look old fashioned in a few years. If the sitter's appearance were fixed upon the canvas exactly as they stood before the artist in his studio, without any selection on the part of the painter, this might be the result, and is the result in the case of painters who had no higher aim than this. But there are qualities in dress that do not belong exclusively to the particular period of their fashion, qualities that are the same in all ages and when these are insisted upon, and the frivolities of the moment in dress not troubled about so much, the portrait has a permanent quality, and will never in consequence look old-fashioned in the offensive way that is usually meant. In the first place, the drapery and stuffs of which clothes are made follow laws in the manner in which they fold and drape over the figure, that are the same in all times. If the expression of the figure through the draperies is sought by the painter, a permanent quality will be given in his work. Whatever fantastic shapes the cut of the garments may assume, and further, the artist does not take whatever comes to hand in the appearance of his sitter, but works to a thought out arrangement of color and form, to a design, this he selects from the moving and varied appearance of his sitter, trying one thing after another, until he sees a suggestive arrangement, from the impression of which he makes his design. It is true that the extremes of fashion do not always lend themselves so readily as more reasonable modes to the making of a good pictorial pattern, but this is not always so. Some extreme fashions giving opportunities of very piquant and interesting portrait designs, so that, however extreme the fashion, if the artist is able to select some aspect of it that will result in a good arrangement for his portrait, the work will never have the offensive old-fashioned look. The principles governing good designs are the same in all times, and if material for such arrangement has been discovered in the most modish of fashions, it has been lifted into a sphere where nothing is ever out of date. It is only when the painter is concerned with the trivial details of fashion for their own sake, for the making his picture look like the real thing, and has not been concerned with transmuting the appearance of fashionable clothes by selection into the permanent realms of form and color design that his work will justify one in saying that it will look stale in a few years. The fashion of dressing sitters in meaningless, so-called classical draperies is a feeble one, and usually argues a lack of capacity for selecting a good arrangement from the clothes of the period in the artist who adopts it. Modern women's clothes are full of suggestions for new arrangements and designs quite as good as anything that has been done in the past. The range of subtle colors and varieties of texture in materials is amazing and the subtlety of invention displayed in some of the designs for costumes leads one to wonder whether there is not something in the remark attributed to an eminent sculptor that, designing ladies' fashions is one of the few arts that is thoroughly vital today. XVIII the visual memory The memory is the great storehouse of artistic material, the treasures of which the artist may know little about until a chance association lights up some of its dark recesses. From early years the mind of the young artist has been storing up impressions in these mysterious chambers, collected from nature's aspects, works of art, and anything that comes within the field of vision, it is from the store that the imagination draws its material, however fantastic and remote from natural appearances the forms it may assume, how much our memory of pictures colors the impressions of nature we receive is probably not suspected by us, but who could say how a scene would appear to him? had he never looked at a picture, so sensitive is the vision to the influence of memory that, after seeing the pictures of some painter whose work has deeply impressed us, we are apartment while the memory of it is still fresh in our minds, to see things as he would paint them, on different occasions after leaving the National Gallery I can remember having seen Trafalgar Square as Paolo Veronese, Turner, or whatever painter may have impressed me in the gallery, would have painted it the memory of their work coloring the impression the scene produced. But, putting aside the memory of pictures, let us consider the place of direct visual memory from nature in our work, pictures being indirect or second-hand impressions. We have seen in an earlier chapter how certain painters in the 19th century, feeling how very second-hand and far removed from nature painting had become, started a movement to discard studio traditions and study nature with a single eye, taking their pictures out of doors and endeavouring to arrest nature's secrets from her on the spot. The pre-Raphaelite movement in England and the Impressionist movement in France were the results of this impulse. And it is interesting, by the way, to contrast the different manner in which this desire for more truth to nature affected the French and English temperaments, the intense individualism of the English sought out every detail, every leaf and flower for itself painting them with a passion and intensity that made their painting a vivid medium for the expression of poetic ideas, while the more synthetic mind of the Frenchman approached the search for visual truth from the opposite point of view of the whole effect, finding in the large, generalist impression a new world of beauty, and his more logical mind led him to inquire into the nature of light, and so to invent a technique founded on scientific principles, but now the first blush of freshness has worn off the new movement. Painters have begun to see that if anything but very ordinary effects are to be attempted. This painting on the spot must give place to more reliance on the memory. Memory has this great advantage over direct vision, it retains more vividly the essential things, and has a habit of losing what is an essential to the pictorial impression. But what is the essential in a painting? What is it makes one want to paint at all? Ah! Here we approach very debatable and shadowy ground, and we can do little but ask questions the answer to which will vary with each individual temperament. What is it that these rays of light striking our retina convey to our brain, and from our brain to whatever is ourselves, in the seat of consciousness above this? What is this mysterious correspondence set up between something within and something without, that at times sends such a clamor of harmony through our whole being? Why do certain combinations of sound in music and of form and color in art affect us so profoundly? What are the laws governing harmony in the universe? and once do they come, it is hardly trees and sky, earth, or flesh and blood, as such, that interest the artist, but rather that through these things in memorable moments he is permitted a consciousness of deeper things, and impelled to seek utterance for what is moving him, it is the record of these rare moments in which one apprehends truth in things seen that the artist wishes to convey to others, but these moments, these flashes of inspiration which are at the inception of every vital picture, occur but seldom. What the painter has to do is to fix them vividly in his memory, to snapshot them, as it were, so that they may stand by him during the toilsome procedure of the painting, and guide the work. This initial inspiration, this initial flash in the mind, need not be the result of a scene in nature, but may of course be purely the work of the imagination, a composition, the sense of which flashes across the mind, but in either case the difficulty is to preserve vividly the sensation of this original artistic impulse and in the case of its having been derived from nature direct, as is so often the case in modern art, the system of painting continually on the spot is apt to lose touch with it very soon, for in the continual observation of anything you have set your easel before day after day, comes a series of impressions, more and more commonplace, as the eye becomes more and more familiar with the details of the subject, and ere long the original emotion that was the reason of the whole work is lost sight of. And one of those pictures or drawings giving a catalogue of tired objects more or less ingeniously arranged that we all know so well as the result work utterly lacking in the freshness and charm of true inspiration. For however commonplace the subject seen by the artist in one of his flashes, it is clothed in a newness and surprise that charm us, be it only an orange on a plate. Now a picture is a thing of paint upon a flat surface, and a drawing is a matter of certain marks upon a paper and how to translate the intricacies of a visual or imagined impression to the prosaic terms of masses of colored pigment or lines and tones is the business with which our technique is concerned. The ease, therefore, with which a painter will be able to remember an impression in a form from which he can work, will depend upon his power to analyze vision in this technical sense. The more one knows about what may be called the anatomy of picture making how certain forms produce certain effects, certain colors or arrangements of their effects. And see, the easier will it be for him to carry away a visual memory of his subject that will stand by him during the long hours of his labors at the picture. The more he knows of the expressive powers of lines and tones, the more easily will he be able to observe the vital things in nature that convey the impression he wishes to memorize. It is not enough to drink in and remember the emotional side of the matter, although this must be done fully. But if the memory of the subject is to be carried away that will be of service technically, The scene must be committed to memory in terms of whatever medium you intend to employ for reproducing it in the case of a drawing. Lines and tones. And the impression will have to be analyzed into these terms as if you were actually drawing the scene on some imagined piece of paper in your mind. The faculty of doing this is not to be acquired all at once. But it is amazing of how much development it is capable. Just as the faculty of committing to memory long poems or plays can be developed. So can the faculty of remembering visual things. The subject has received little attention in art schools until just recently, but it is not yet so systematically done as it might be. Monsieur Leconte de Bois-Baudrin in France experimented with pupils in this memory training, beginning with very simple things like the outline of a nose, and going on to more complex subjects by easy stages, with the most surprising results, and there is no doubt that a great deal more can and should be done in this direction than is at present attempted. What students should do is to form a habit of making every day in their sketchbook a drawing of something they have seen that has interested them, and that they have made some attempt at memorizing. Don't be discouraged if the results are poor and disappointing at first you will find that by persevering your power of memory will develop and be of the greatest service to you in your after work. Try particularly to remember the spirit of the subject, and in this memory drawing some scribbling and fumbling will necessarily have to be done. You cannot expect to be able to draw definitely and clearly from memory, at least at first. Although your aim should always be to draw as frankly and clearly as you can. Illustration, play a lively. Study on brown paper in black and white conch chalk illustrating a simple method of studying drapery forms. Let us assume that you have found a subject that moves you and that, being too fleeting to draw on the spot, you wish to commit to memory, drink a full enjoyment of it. Let it soak in for the recollection of this will be of the utmost use to you afterwards in guiding your memory drawing. This mental impression is not difficult to recall, it is the visual impression in terms of line and tone.